Midnight Facts for Insomniacs. <laughs> I just learned something. Oh, I'm having fun now. The tooth was coveted by power-hungry humans, and they split into warring tribes, all competing over this magical molar. Does the story give us idea of what the powers are? I don't. I don't really want you to ask questions. Okay. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I will stay in my damn lane. I would like you, as I did, to accept all of this uh-huh. uh, at face value. We have a new mascot. We do. It's true. I have adopted a pocket panther. <laughs> I don't know about pocket. Maybe more soupial sweater pouch. He's, he's pretty small. He is the coolest little black cat you can imagine. And that means that, uh, Duncan, you also have a pocket panther since we are cohabitating. <laughs> oh, I know I got a pocket panther, baby. <laughs> yeah, I do. He is the best. His name is Inky Midnight. And it's nice to have a new uh, little buddy, little furry buddy around the house. Yeah, he's a nice furry void menace that jumps up and wants to smell my noodles and generally gets involved in every meal in some way, shape, or fashion. Uh, he's yeah, he's a little aggressive when it comes to food. He's, he's just, like, oh, counter? No, I got you. He just he's a headbutter. Yes, he doesn't uh, bite or anything, but mm-hmm. he will headbutt your elbows out of the way and or your utensils out of your hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I discovered that the first time I tried to eat pasta around him, I was like, ah, oh, I'm going to put this in my mouth. He's like, really? Whap. He's very affectionate, though, and the most affectionate cat that I've ever had or possibly ever met. He sleeps with me all the time. He likes his belly rubs. Uh, Just the best cat ever. I am super happy, and uh, he's uh, fuzz therapy. He's making me feel better. Yes, and as they say in, you know, work marriages, happy wife, happy Miffy. Am I I your wife in this scenario? You're my work wife. (laughs) Okay. I don't like that one bit. (laughs) So before we get started, a shout out and thank you to the many insomniacs who pointed out that Catherine of Aragon was not one of the wives that was beheaded by Henry VIII Mm. from last episode. Feeling deep neckbeard. We have a very knowledgeable, very meticulous, very vocal listenership. It's all true. I did promptly cut that mistake from the episode, so most of you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. But for those who noticed it, uh, oops. Thank you for keeping the facts in Miffy. Good looking out. Good job. Keeping us on our toes, you guys. Also, usually we do the reviews at the end, but this one is special. If you recall, last time we spent about five minutes bitching about a three-star review from someone who claimed to have never actually listened to the show. Mm -hmm. With that in mind, here is the most recent review. Five stars. I have listened, and it's awesome. Unlike quote-unquote Dave, I have been listening since the early days, and I'm never disappointed. Love this show. So funny and informative, too. Love you guys. XXX. Tri- triple X. <laughs> it was one, one too many X's. Now no. we can't show that. Missing an O there, yeah. I think. That is CMAC1636 via Apple Podcast Great Britain. So thank you, CMAC. We appreciate it very much. Thank you for helping us uh, by canceling out a negative review. Remember, every negative review can be invalidated with a positive one. Although I guess it wasn't technically negative. It was like uh, non-committal. It was just trolling uninformed nonsense. It's like, I've never listened to this, so three stars. Cool. Three stars out of five is more positive than negative, Right. But I have very negative feelings about the person who posted it. Right. It seems entirely unnecessary. Yeah. So on to today's episode, which is, uh, this episode is a terrible idea. (laughs) (laughs) I've told you before how much I love it when you begin episodes that way, right? I will explain why, or at least my rationale, but Mm. I think you'll probably get the gist when you hear the title. The topic that the Insomniacs chose for today is Native American Mythology. Oh, boy. 
And this was actually supposed to be last week's episode, but I flipped them for the same reason that I'm still sort of complaining about it today, which is that this topic is impossible. And it's also rife for us to screw something up and get canceled as two white men on Native American soil talking about their mythology. There's certainly that. Yeah. And also, it is just impossible to do this kind of topic justice in one episode or even like a short series of episodes. Yeah. You could produce an entire podcast on this topic and never fully do it justice. Native American mythology is just a huge subject and kind of doesn't even make sense as a concept. It'd be like saying we're going to cover Caucasian mythology. Mm. Native Americans are not a monolith. Every tribe established its own unique framework of myths and legends and philosophies. And to further complicate the situation, very few Native American myths were written and or cataloged by Native Americans. Most of the research that is readily available online comes from oral traditions that have been filtered through the translations and the perspectives of colonizers. Right, which we've always found to be completely perfect and, and accurate and never worthy of mm. critique. Yeah, we have created an entire genre of quote-unquote Indian lore, uh, much of which is completely bastardized. Yeah. For instance, the concept of a spirit animal. People love to throw around that term. You can find quizzes online that will tell you your spirit animal, but it's not even an actual concept that exists in the folklore of indigenous people. No, and while we're at it, uh, Deadpool is my spirit animal. <laughs> There is the concept of a totem, but that's different and certainly has no relation to the most frequent application of the term my spirit animal, which would be as the caption on an Instagram post of a cat who fell asleep with his face in a bowl of food. <laughs> I have seen that. My favorite spirit animal meme, someone named uh, Contagious, with a U, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. wrote, uh, my spirit animal is that little rat looking creature that hangs out next to Jabba the Hutt and laughs at shit. <laughs> um, I can't remember, what something crumb? Yeah, I, I he used to know his name. He has a name? Yeah, he does. Yeah. He's, okay. he's like, it, I want to call him like Inglorious Crumb, but it's not his full name. <laughs> it's not his name, but it's, it's something like that. So the concept of a spirit animal can be fun, and it wouldn't even be accurate to say that it was appropriated because you can't really steal something that never existed in the first place. Right. I mentioned totems. Those did exist, and they are in a similar category, but also kind of bastardized. The word totem is an Americanized version of the Ojibwe term dudeman or dudum which was similar to a clan designation or like a coat of arms. Mm, okay. Some of the first totems were bear, dog, fish, etc. And of course, those dudums could be stacked on top of each other to create uh, dudum poles. I, I'm going <laughs> to... You are setting me up to get canceled. You're like, let's just throw Duncan all of this shit he can say to fuck with this culture that's been massively abused. So we're going to start by covering some themes and concepts that are common to the myths of many indigenous tribes and then dive into a few specific myths that are representative of these larger themes. And these will generally be stories that I find personally compelling. Hmm. But I just want to make it clear that we are not even pretending that we can give some kind of comprehensive overview of Native American beliefs, because that is not even possible. Yeah, no. You'll, you'll know that the podcast is named Midnight Facts for Insomniacs. It does not, it's not called Midnight All of the Facts for Insomniacs. We'll give you a few, but this is what we got. Yeah, Native American culture is diverse, and the mythology of indigenous people certainly cannot be encapsulated in a 40-minute podcast episode. Indeed. So to narrow the scope a bit, we're going to specifically focus on myths and mythological elements that are common to indigenous people of the North American continent. Gotcha. Just cut it down just a little bit. <laughs> Many of these themes will be familiar from decades of stereotyping, but that doesn't mean that there isn't some truth behind them. Mm-hmm. Indigenous people of North America were understandably focused on the natural world around them, which had such a huge impact on their lives. 
Their myths and beliefs revolve around the seasons, the classical elements of earth like water, fire, wind, etc., and of course trees and corn, and maybe most importantly, animals are often the main characters in these myths and traditions. Many of the legends were clearly developed to explain aspects of nature that were incomprehensible at the time. For instance, if you're wondering why the woodchuck has no hair on its belly, that is because, according to the Abenaki people, Grandmother Woodchuck plucked all of the hairs from her belly and used them to weave a magical bag. I mean, it sounds like a good use of hair. If I, mm. if only I'd known. I'm not completely clear on why. I, I tried to read this one. It got very complicated from there. And honestly, I do not uh, fully understand her motivations. Mm. If nature is a theme running through Native American legends, then the predominant theme running through my understanding of Native American legends is bafflement. <laughs> is a solid, huh? Because as with any religion, many of these stories are flat out surreal. They are incredibly creative and interesting, but the narrative logic is, let's say, flexible. I would go so far as to say foreign, as we as white peoples. Allegory and morals are often baked into these myths, as is the belief in some version of a great spirit, which we will examine in more detail later. Mm. And again, it's not common to all of them. It's just, it's just impossible. Now, as pointed out, it's going to be challenging to avoid tropes and stereotypes. Most Americans, especially those from our generation, cannot help but view indigenous people to some extent through the caricature of the noble savage. Ah, uh, yes. I will never shake the image of a Native American shedding a single tear because littering. Are you familiar with that uh, commercial? Do you remember it? No, no. No? No. I oh, I am so excited to bring this to your attention. It's one of the most famous commercials of all time. Okay. And I will just uh, play it for you, and you can describe what you're witnessing here. Okay, so we got a dude in a canoe who may be Native American, unsure. Um, just paddled past some trash and a factory and yet more trash. Powerful music, I'm sure you can hear, that is very moving for a simple paddle canoe journey. <laughs> right. It's a little, a little I'm expecting to see some cannons firing. But... Oh, streams of cars, people littering literally right in front of him. Some people have a deep, abiding respect for the natural beauty that was once this country. And some people don't. People start pollution. People can stop it. And what looks like a loogie hanging from his right eye. That didn't even look like a tear. So the idea is that the Native American is very perturbed by this. It's, he's, he's wounded. Well, yeah, because some Karen just chucked a plastic bag full of trash directly at his feet. Like, I'd yeah. be pissed, too. Yeah, it seems, uh, it seems like they're littering at him, yeah. weirdly, Yeah, which is unnecessary. <laughs> so, of course, I had to go down a rabbit hole and research the genesis of this commercial, and I was not disappointed. The star of the ad is a man who calls himself Iron Eyes Cody, and he played a variety of Native American characters in Hollywood— he was also, in reality, an Italian-American named Aspera de Corti. Yep. I was like, he does not look Native American. Yeah, this guy is about as Native American as Rock Hudson, who also, by the way, played a Native American character named Young Bull in the 1973 film Winchester. Yikes. Or about as, you know, Chinese as the dude who played What's-His-Bucket in Kung Fu. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you look up some stills from that uh, Rock Hudson film, it is just basically a hate crime. Yeah. <laughs> 
It is pretty rough. <laughs> Yikes. But to me, Hudson's appropriation was not nearly as egregious as Aspero de Corti's because Corti insisted throughout his life, despite all evidence to the contrary, that he was Native American and was well known for, quote, wearing his film wardrobe as daily clothing, including braided wig, fringed leathers, and beaded moccasins. What? He was wearing buckskin leather beaded outfits Just everywhere? in the Safeway. What the going fuck? To, yeah, going through the drive-thru. That's the grounds for a legitimate stoning. Like, boo this man! Like, what? So the anti-littering ad had been produced by an organization called Keep America Beautiful, which was not, in fact, headed by environmentalists, but rather by a coalition of bloodless corporations. Quote, Keep America Beautiful was founded in 1953 by the American Can Company and the Owen, Illinois Glass Company, who were later joined by the likes of Coca-Cola and the Dixie Cup Company. During the 1960s, Keep America Beautiful's uh, first anti-litter campaigns featured Susan Spotless, a white girl who wore a spotless white dress and pointed her accusatory finger at pieces of trash heedlessly dropped by her parents, unquote. Which I'm sure had a, the amazing effect of making everyone stop throwing their garbage in the ground. Yeah, I'd say it was smart of them to switch tactics. Judgmental brat doesn't seem like an effective spokesperson or delivery method for your message. No, I'm far more likely to huck a, a plastic bag full of trash at judgmental brat than I am at Native American dude. So far from being a charitable organization with altruistic goals, the Keep America Beautiful Coalition was in fact a cynical group of corporations using their ads as a strategy to deflect blame for environmental pollution. Quote, by making individual viewers feel guilty and responsible for the polluted environment, the ad deflected the question of responsibility away from the corporations and placed it entirely in the realm of individual action, concealing the role of industry and polluting the landscape, unquote. Yeah, they're like, hey, don't throw all this trash we produce on the ground. Right? Notice the ad has minimal voiceover, mm. but it makes it very clear that, quote, people start pollution, people can stop it. Right, right. Damn it, people. <laughs> Quit starting pollution. We corporate personas have not done this. So back to the topic. Yeah, yeah. Are you starting to get the sense that I was sort of dreading the uh, daunting task of trying to encapsulate all of Native American mythology into an episode? I can't wait. I, I mean, you did such a bang-up job with the spies. I figure you, you got this. <laughs> My brain was clearly looking for any distraction or opportunity for procrastination. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but we're going to forge ahead because we don't have a choice. And we turned this podcast over to the fans... And that was a huge mistake. That's that's our bad. You know what? We you know we got to own up to it now. So we were discussing tropes, and I think it's important to remember that they often do come from somewhere valid. There is a kernel of truth buried within every cliche, and in this case, there absolutely is a Native American focus on the sanctity of nature and also on gratitude for the world around us. While this particular drum has been beaten to death by Hollywood in movies like Dances with Wolves, uh, the truth is that European colonizers did view the natural world as an antagonist that had to be tamed and made useful, while the philosophies of many indigenous groups centered around their reliance on and connection to and appreciation of the natural world. Right. Nature could be dangerous, it could be cruel, but also was the source of food and shelter and tools. And typically had a purpose, if I recall some of the myths I've Mm -hmm. Gone over my own, my own private time. Sure, we'll cover those. Native American Studies professor Jack Forbes attempted to explain these differing viewpoints, the ways that Europeans tend to fetishize the individual and view us as entities that exist in opposition to hostile natural forces, while Native people often view their own interests as being aligned with the well-being of nature. 
Forbes summarized it like this, quote, I can lose my hands and still live. I can lose my legs and still live. I can lose my eyes and still live. But if I lose the air, I die. If I lose the sun, I die. If I lose the earth, I die. If I lose the water, I die. You're getting the mm. sense here? Yeah, it's yeah. kind of repetitive. Yeah. All of these things are a part of me more essential to my every breath than is my so-called body. And yes, I am aware of the fact that earlier I bemoaned the tendency of researchers to rely on Native American philosophies as filtered through the lens of white men, and I just quoted a white man who was purporting to understand indigenous philosophy. I am part of the problem, and I acknowledge that, but I'm <laughs> doing my best. Chain hypocrisy be thy name. This episode is cursed. Yeah, <laughs> this is going to be so much fun. <laughs> Anyway, I think it's uh, time to actually get into the topic. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe mm. we should look at some myths. Hey, look over here, myths. <laughs> I think the best way to start is to give a quick overview of the history of indigenous people of North America. Okay. Delay, delay, delay. Yeah. <laughs> I can hear the procrastination in your keystrokes. Jeebus grievous. So Native American history starts with the Paleo-Indians. That is a term that immediately makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. It sounds not very PC, but is still apparently an accepted term for the Paleolithic humans who crossed the Bering Strait via a land bridge, a strip of land which at the time connected modern-day Siberia in Russia to modern-day Alaska. Hence, bridge. This would have been approximately 17,000 years ago during the Pleistocene Ice Age when sea levels were lower because much of the seawater was locked up in glaciers. Mm -hmm. There is some debate about the details and the timeline of this migration, but indigenous people of today do have genetic links to the people of Siberia. So that kind of lends credence to the theory. Yep. By around 8,000 BCE, the climate had stabilized into something resembling our climate today. And by tracing specific types of stone tools and implements throughout the Americas, it becomes clear that the Paleo-Indian people gradually diversified into hundreds of tribes and nations. And then took to killing each other in typical human fashion. <laughs> Immediately began warring. Yep. As, as we do. Yeah, as one is wont to do, yes. One of the first, largest, and most well-known populations of indigenous Americans is the Clovis people, named after the town where evidence of them was first discovered, Clovis, New Mexico, in mm. the 1930s. They are identifiable, and their progress is traceable via distinctive Clovis Point stone spearheads. It is kind of amazing to me that these spearheads were so recognizable and, like, consistently distinctive. Hmm. Almost as if they were manufactured to specifications. I don't know. Were there enough of them that could actually diversify into, like, specialized fields? Like, you just had the arrowhead maker? Well, I think they had arrowhead makers who kind of perfected their particular arrowhead, or in this case, spearhead, right. and then sort of taught everyone else. But it's amazing that they all managed to learn this and make them so, you know, uniform. Hmm. If I had been a member of the Clovis people, my spearheads would have been confounding to modern scientists. <laughs> they, they would have looked like literal puzzle pieces. <laughs> They're like, wow, he, he managed to actually make it square in the front. I don't know. what <laughs> They would have been utterly useless as weapons, but great for throwing a wrench into the entire discipline of anthropology. <laughs> so tools, implements, arrowheads, and construction projects have proven extremely useful when it comes to identifying and tracing populations of indigenous Americans. For instance, the distinctive Folsom tools associated with the Folsom culture that is believed to have evolved from Clovis and the famous mound builders in the eastern United States, the most prominent example of which was the Mississippian culture that developed along the Mississippi and Tennessee rivers. Hmm. As Native Americans proliferated and diversified, so did their philosophies and mythology. And we're going to start with origin myths because every civilization obviously has to explain from whence they come. Mm. Kids are going to ask. Yeah, you know, after they've watched their parents bone in the tent right next to them. I feel like that's where half of the myths of a culture come from, just 
parents improvising. Yeah. Oh, well, that's um, because there was a big bird and then we had trees. The myth of why is the sky blue and why doesn't daddy come around anymore? Mm. <laughs> one of the most common origin myths and probably one of the most well-known concepts in Native American mythology is the Great Turtle or Turtle Island. Mm. Do you know about this? No. Really? This is a myth that is common to a large number of tribes, most notably including the so-called Delaware people, known as the Lenape. The Lenape people were based in this area, actually. They migrated seasonally from central California to the Yosemite Valley. Hmm. No, they, they lived in Delaware. I know. I, I was like, that makes no sense considering they were called the Delaware people. You just uh, nodded and went along with it. Well, yeah, because I've learned to do that in this. You'll either tell me I'm being bullshitted at or you're, you'll be like, no, that, that's true. I was looking for maybe some pushback, but I'm glad that you bought that one. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. You might not have heard of the Lenape, but you're probably more familiar with one of the other tribes that famously developed a version of this tale, the Iroquois. Mm. So the Turtle Island myth starts off pretty bleak and very similar to many creation myths with which we are already familiar. In the beginning, there was the void, just inky blackness, perhaps even darker than inky midnight. Mm, that's hard to do. It's pretty dark. Yeah. He's sitting on a chair or something. You're, it's gone. And he yawns. He's like, shit, that chair has teeth. <laughs> Within the void lived a spirit, and I have struggled with this concept before. A void is not a void if it has an occupant. But uh, whatever. The spirit was named Kishalamakank. I tried to find an online pronunciation for that, by the way, and failed. So just cut me a little slack mm -hmm. on this one. All right. I won't mock it, even though there's jokes springing to mind. So Kishalamakank eventually fell asleep. That can't be right, but okay. <laughs> he gave it three practice runs and was like, nope, that's still wrong. So Kishalamakank eventually fell asleep. And while he was asleep, he dreamed of the earth as we know it today. He conceptualized all of creation in a single night of slumber. Although I guess there's no day or night in the void either. Yeah, time telling is still a bit fuzzy. I really struggle with voids. You do. <laughs> it's not your favorite concept. His dream obviously included humans. He envisioned the indigenous people and the ceremonies they would perform. It was a very long and detailed dream. Mm. So Kishilamakank set about creating the world that he had envisioned. But he was very pragmatic. So his first act was to create some minions because crafting the entirety of the universe is surprisingly more labor-intensive than you might think. Uh, definitely more so than a dream. So Kishalamakonk created helper spirits, the grandmother of the South and the grandfathers of the North, East, and West. Together they conjured into existence the world and all of nature and also a very special tree. And from the roots of that tree was born a man. And when the man had been created, he bent down and kissed the earth, from which sprang woman. Mm. You're welcome, ladies. Well, I mean, it's about right up there with a rib, I suppose. So now the earth was doing pretty well. But then a problem arose, because there existed in this world a magical bear tooth, which granted its owner special powers. Hmm. The tooth was coveted by power-hungry humans, and they split into warring tribes, all competing over this magical molar. Does the story give us idea of what the powers are? 
I don't, I don't really want you to ask questions. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I will stay in my damn lane. I would like you, as I did, to accept all of this uh-huh. uh, at face value. So everyone was fighting over the uh, Beartooth. Are we we're on board with this? Yeah, I, I accept now. Okay. Kishala Makonk, I think I've said it differently every single time. Kishala Makonk was displeased mm. and came up with a plan. He sent down a spirit named Nanapush with instructions to light a sacred fire on top of a high mountain. And the smoke from the fire drew the attention of all the peoples of the world, and they gathered together to investigate. With the humans of the world in one place, Nanapush conjured a pipe and stuffed it with tobacco, and uh, he passed it around. Presumably this uh, took a while with one pipe and every human. Mm. And it was also a, a pretty large bag of uh, tobacco leaf. Mm. Yeah. I'm just thinking about all the herp that was passed around. I mean, pipe to pipe to pipe to mouth just, to jeebus. Yeah, and how mad would you be if one guy just like bogarted? Just, <laughs> just puff, puff, pass, dude. Puff, puff, pass, bro. Dude, we got six billion other people to work with. Come this on. This is like quarter puff pass. Yeah. You can't do two puffs here. That's <laughs> insane. <laughs> Nanapush instructed the people that whenever there was anger or strife or conflict, they should similarly uh, smoke a bowl and chill, Mm. and they would be imbued with wisdom. This philosophy is suspect, (laughs) but has been adopted by many of my closest friends. Also true. After some time had passed, that pesky bear tooth once again began causing problems. This time it instigated a fight between an evil snake and a giant toad. The toad was a water spirit. He was responsible for all the waters of the world. And in the conflict, he swallowed both the snake and the tooth. The snake then bit his belly from inside, causing water to burst forth and a flood engulfed the world. Nanapush quickly began climbing to higher ground. And as he did, he snatched up animals left and right and stuffed them in his sash to save them. Mm. Sound kind of familiar? Yes. Yeah, it's very Noah. Pretty much every society has some version of a flood myth. Yeah, which is why we uh, got pretty good factual evidence now that a flood did happen. Many floods have happened. They've happened uh, recently in Santa Cruz. No, I mean worldwide floods, <laughs> you smartass. <laughs> so Nanapush finally reached the top of a mountain, but the water was still rising. So he climbed to the top of a cedar tree and began singing a magical song that made the water stop. Rain, rain, go away. He was like, maybe you should have thought of that earlier. Yeah, which, where was your song then, genius? Because it was a very stressful situation to the point that he forgot he had the ability to sing floods away during a flood. That's a pretty clutch uh, thing to do, though. <laughs> right? I mean, seriously, I could use that. Anyway, so now he was stuck at the top of a tree, but at least the water had stopped rising. And this is when the turtle came to the rescue. He offered to allow all of the animals to gather on his back. Uh, but in a rare nod to logic and physics, the weavers of this myth acknowledged that the turtle was just a bit too small to accommodate the entirety of the animal kingdom. He's <laughs> like, y'all can all get on. He's like, no, we can't. And the turtle was pulverized <laughs> into Instantly murdered. tiny dust particles. <laughs> the well-meaning but uh, misguided offer. One too many hits of the peace pipe. <laughs> exactly. So Nanapush asked for volunteers to dive down under the floodwaters and bring up some earth so that he could enlarge the back of the turtle. Mm. A number of animals tried and failed, and the only animal who was able to make it all the way down and return to the surface with some mud on his nose was the humble muskrat. And thus, Nanapush decreed that the muskrat would forever proliferate and prosper in the world. And when does the day go by that you don't see a prosperous muskrat? Yeah, all of them. I live in a city. Yeah, I didn't really come through on that uh, promise. No, definitely, definitely over-promised, under-delivered on that one. So Nanapush took the tiny amount of earth that the muskrat had procured and once again began to sing. 
and the turtle and the smudge of dirt began to balloon to massive size and scale, so massive that Nanapush lost sight of the other side, and so he sent animals to explore. It seems like this guy had the ability to just kind of sing anything he wanted, and he's very selective, though, in when he sings to fix things and solve problems. It, well, he seems like he, too, had been taking too many hits of the peace pipe, because it seems like if you put something in front of him, he would be like, oh, I can work with that, but he, he wouldn't just do it. So Nanapush lost sight of the other side of the earth, and so he sent animals out to explore to kind of figure out the scope of the land. First, he sent a bear, who returned two days later after reaching the far shore, but the world continued to expand, so Nanapush next sent a deer, who was able to reach the end of the land and return within two weeks. Finally, he sent a wolf, but at that point, the earth had expanded so much that the wolf became lost and never returned. And that is why the wolf howls, because he is forever seeking his lost ancestors. It's over here! I found the coast! I don't even know where I am! The continent of North America had now been formed and become forever known as Turtle Island. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So you will notice that the creation myth does include what you might refer to as a god, but he's not the kind of god that you'd make sacrifices to or pray to on a nightly basis. He's not constantly demanding devotion and fealty. Mm-mm. He just sort of does a thing. Christian god is clingy. Thirsty, I would say. <laughs> yeah. The truth is that there isn't really a perfect analogy for the Christian concept of God within any particular Native American mythology, but Europeans were certainly looking to find one, and the closest they came was what you might have heard referred to as the Great Spirit. Mm. And the Great Spirit, once again, this gives us a chance to talk about some of the pitfalls of trying to understand and contextualize Native American mythology within a European framework. The idea of a great spirit appealed to Christians because in their minds it echoed their own concept of an all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing God. But the Native American activist Russell Means explains that in the Lakota language, a more accurate translation would be great mystery. Mm. The Lakota words for this entity specifically are wakantanka, and in some ways it reminds me of the Japanese kami that we explored in our episode on Shintoism and mm. Japanese mythology. The great spirit exists in every natural living thing. It is a power or a force that inhabits natural phenomena and imbues them with what we might call holiness or sacred life force. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely more Shinto-leaning than the great god Cathal. Chief Luther Standing Bear of the Lakota Nation described the great spirit's role in creation thusly, Quote, from Wakantanka, the great spirit, there came a great unifying life force that flowed in and through all things, the flowers of the plains, blowing winds, rocks, trees, birds, animals, and was the same force that had been breathed into the first man. Thus, all things were kindred and were brought together by the same great mystery. Hmm. Similarly, the Lakota medicine man Lame Deer says that the great spirit, quote, is not like a human being. He is a power. The power could be in a cup of coffee. The great spirit is no old man with a beard, unquote. I'm, I'm sorry. Everything went buzzy after you said that there's a medicine man named Lame Deer. <laughs> <laughs> he needs to take some of his own medicine <laughs> so he could stop being lame, Deer. So there are so many versions of great spirit origin myths that it seems pointless to even pick one yet again. Uh, but I'm going to, because I think this is a great chance to once again highlight the diversity of Native American culture and the futility of this episode. Mm. Let's look, for example, at the Chittimacha tribe of Louisiana. Mm. Once the most powerful tribe between Texas and Florida, and estimated to have been in existence for more than 6,000 years, it has dwindled down to a little over 1,100 people, but is the only tribe in Louisiana that still controls a portion of their native land. Mm. 
less than a thousand acres. Yikes. Yeah, but you know, it's something. It's something. Contrary to the popular Native American stereotype, Chitimacha society is not an egalitarian utopia. They had rigid hierarchies and were organized into various clans that were designated by animals. So they had wolf, bear, dog, etc. Members of different social strata even spoke different dialects, and intermarriage between them was forbidden. Weird. This is kind of like the Indian caste system. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times we think of Native Americans as just all existing as one in some kind of uh, overall unity where there was no real... Social strife. Yeah, and uh, clearly not necessarily always the case. Mm. However, like many tribes, they were matrilineal, so possessions and land were passed down through female members of the family. And while the clans were guided by male chiefs, those chiefs would be selected by a council of female elders. Mm. The Chitimacha were expert basket weavers, and they famously practiced artificial cranial deformation, similar to ancient Egyptian and Mayan societies, which means that they would flatten the foreheads of their male children through binding during mm. infancy when the skull was you know, still soft and pliable. Mm-hmm. This might have been used to indicate social class, as it was with the Maya, or maybe it was simply considered aesthetically pleasing. Mm. And I'll tell you what it was definitely doing was warping and damaging their frontal lobes so their emotional control would be less good. Well, it's interesting. It doesn't seem to have had any actual physical impact. They have scanned the brains of people with these uh, deformations, and it doesn't seem to impact their actual brain function at all. Hmm. It's like changing your rib cage or something. You're not actually you know, changing the structure of the heart. Gotcha. Okay. So the Chitimacha have a unique Great Spirit origin story. In their version, the Great Spirit crafted the earth from his own body. First, he took the form of a giant body of water with the earth submerged inside. This is similar to the Great Turtle origin myth because he then enlisted animals to dive down and retrieve the earth to make dry land. And this time it was not the muskrat, but rather the crawfish who was the hero and brought up land that could be formed into the island of America. Hmm. The great spirit then created man to live on the land, but man became increasingly wicked. So to placate him, the great spirit created and gifted to him tobacco and women. (laughs) Kind of fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) So ladies, you were not created by man in this story. Uh, You were created for man, kind of like a a bribe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You were like a dog treat to get an uppity chihuahua to settle down. I'm not, I'm not going to go with you on that one because I will get killed. <laughs> I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm no, saying yeah. it's a messed up story. Yeah, yeah. The great spirit next created the sun and the moon to provide light and heat. Quote, the moon was a man and the sun was his wife. The great spirit told them that they must bathe often in order to be strong enough to give off light and heat. The sun did what the great spirit said. She bathed often and kept herself bright and shining. The Chitimacha have always honored the sun, and she has always been kind to them. The moon, on the other hand, did not obey the order of the great spirit. He took no baths. To this day, he is pale and gives off no heat. He can still be seen chasing across the sky to catch the sun, who runs from her disobeying husband. Her disobedient, stinky husband. I love that the moon is just a slovenly pig man, (laughs) and the sun is fleeing from poor hygiene. Can confirm. Do you feel attack? <laughs> no. I've been actually told on quite a number of occasions I don't really stink. No, you smell okay. Yeah, but uh, I will definitely say that uh, there are more than a few incels that I've met in my day that, yep, you need to wash, moon boy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've covered creation and the great spirit, but arguably the most famous character in all of indigenous mythology is Coyote. 
Mm-hmm. He is a complicated figure and once again cannot be summarized because every version of Coyote is a little bit different or a lot different, like sometimes just radically opposite. In general, however, Coyote is typically neither fully good nor fully evil. He can be beneficial to humankind or he can act as an antagonist, but his motivations are never simple. Yeah, I mean, one one story is a troll. The next story, he's like an out-and-out anti-hero. The next story, he's an antagonist. And then the next story, he's like, I'm going to help all of you get fire. Yeah, in the Apache tradition, Coyote is athletic and a warrior. In Navajo myths, he is ancient. He already existed back when the first man and woman were created. Uh, Perhaps most often, we think of his famous depiction as a trickster. He has frequently been compared to Loki in Norse mythology. And tales of Coyote can be used as parables to teach important lessons. You have to learn from his shenanigans. Yeah. The ones that I've heard the most of are, are he's portrayed as somebody who was trying to do a good thing and ended up screwing up, and we should learn from his sort of fickle nature and not do that. Coyote factors especially prominently in the mythology of Midwest and Western tribes, such as California tribes like the Miwok and Wapo. This makes sense because the animal coyote tends to prefer prairie land and desert, wide open spaces. And so while they exist pretty much all across America, you're more likely to encounter coyote in the sprawling western United States rather than in the densely packed East Coast. And now we have them in downtown Santa Cruz. Yeah, you might find them uh, in your backyard. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why Inky is not uh, going outside. No, no, he would get et. He he did live outside for quite a long time, and I do think he has some pretty sharp claws. I pity the coyote. (laughs) I pity the fool coyote who picks a fight with Inky, but I'm not risking it. Yeah, I wouldn't want to risk it either. And, you know, I think he would still get at that coyote would just die a week later from sepsis. Yeah, the coyote would have a cat scratch fever, but he'd be full, I guess. Inky's kind of a fat ass these days. <laughs> so coyote is, again, mostly a West Coast phenomenon. In fact, Northeastern tribes focused on characters such as the Great Hare, a.k.a. the Master Rabbit, who would later be incorporated into Southern African-American tradition in the form of Briar Rabbit. Huh, really? Yeah. Oh, kind of a BDSM uh, vibe. Oh, Master Rabbit, these (laughs) ropes are too tight. In coyote myths, the coyote is usually male and depicted anthropomorphically, walking upright in the manner of a human. He occasionally uses his sneakiness and trickery in service of humankind. Like you mentioned, in many of the tales, he is a lupine Prometheus, stealing fire from the greedy spirits to bring to humankind. Right. But he's not always so benevolent. Quote, some stories depict Coyote as the embodiment of evil lechery, a serial rapist who uses trickery to attack a variety of victims, including, for example, his own mother-in-law and his sister. Yep. Such tales may have served to reinforce the community moral code by using outrageous humor to portray examples of intolerable behavior, unquote. Now, don't go raping your mom and your sister, because that's just gross, and it gets cross-eyed children out there. Nothing more outrageously humorous than incestuous rape. <laughs> Coyote is associated with the creation myth in many tribes. For instance, the Miwok myth, in which Coyote creates all of the animals and then calls a giant meeting to discuss and debate whether they should create man. Hmm. And I think their decision kind of backfired there. It's like a council of oats getting together to create horses. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Coyote is also the star of many flood myths as well. He often is the cause of the flood, as you might imagine. Yep. And in many popular myths, Coyote battles his most powerful nemesis, a small but speedy and colorful chaparral bird. In these tales, Coyote is often depicted as determined and resourceful. But that resourcefulness does not extend to the arena of rocket technology, a discipline in which he is sorely deficient. Meep, meep. 
In these tales, Coyote also has a tendency to fall for the old tunnel painted on a mountain trick. I mean, I've fallen for that. I mentioned Coyote has frequently been associated with death myths, and specifically with the creation of death. I like this one from the Caddo Nation, located around the Oklahoma area. Hmm. So in the beginning, death did not exist. Everyone stayed alive until there were so many people that there wasn't room for anyone else. The chiefs held a council to determine what to do. One man arose and said it would be good to have the people die and be gone for a little while, but then to return. As soon as he sat down, Coyote jumped up and said that people ought to die forever because there was not enough food or room for everyone to live forever. And thus was created the first goth. <laughs> people should just die forever. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe the first conservative. Yeah. He was like, dead people are trying to come back. Build that wall. <laughs> they was going to build a wall. <laughs> nice. The other men objected, saying that there would be no more happiness in the world if their loved ones died. All except Coyote decided to have the people die and be gone for a little while and then to come back to life. After the council, the medicine men built a large grass house facing the east. They gathered the men of the tribe and told them that the people who died would come to the medicine house and then be restored to life. The chief medicine man said that he would put a large white and black eagle feather on top of the grass house. When the feather became bloody and fell over, the people would know that someone had died. Then all of the medicine men would come to the grass house and sing a song that would call the spirit of the dead to the grass house. When the spirit came to the house, they would restore it to life again. All of the people were glad about these rules regarding death, for they were scared for the dead. Except Coyote, I guess. He was still a little bitter. Yeah. <laughs> Rassin' frassin'. After a time, they saw the eagle feather turn bloody and fall, and they knew that someone had died. The medicine men assembled in the grass house and sang for the spirit of the dead to come to them. In about ten days, a whirlwind blew from the west, circled the grass house, and finally entered through the entrance in the east. From the whirlwind appeared a handsome young man who had been murdered by another tribe. All of the people saw him and rejoiced, except Coyote, who was displeased because his rules had not been carried out. In a short time, the feather became bloody and fell again. Coyote saw it and at once went to the grass house. He took his seat near the door and sat with the singers for many days. When at last he heard the whirlwind coming, he closed the door before the whirlwind could enter. The spirit in the whirlwind then passed on by. Coyote thus introduced the idea of permanent death and people from that time on grieved about the dead and were unhappy. Now, whenever anyone meets a whirlwind or hears the wind whistle, he says, there is someone wandering about. Ever since Coyote closed the door, the spirits of the dead have wandered over the earth, trying to find some place to go until at last they find the road to spirit land. After this day, Coyote ran away and never came back, for he was afraid of what he had done. He always looked over his shoulder, afraid that someone was pursuing him. And since then, he has been starving because no one will give him anything to eat. I mean, I'm, I am picturing in my head, like him just sitting next to the door. They're all singing, trying to get this person to come back. And he just sort of reaches over and <laughs> close the door. And they all turn to him like, the fuck, dude? <laughs> Coyote really does not think about the consequences of his actions very often. No, no he's not a deep, long-term strategic thinker. How is this going to be received? Mm -hmm. And also, like, uh, Coyote's all uh, then subject to permanent death. Mm -hmm. Didn't work out. No, no, the permanent death via Honda most of the time. Ooh. So what does happen after you die in uh, Native American philosophy? Well, again, there is just no point in generalizing. Mm. Some tribes believe in reincarnation, and of course we're all familiar with the romantic idea of the spirit world. Mm -hmm. But other tribes, like the Apache and Navajo, had a more wary view of ghosts and spirits, believing that certain people might come back as malevolent spirits, bent on revenge. And of course, I imagine a few listeners are probably waiting for me to talk about the so-called happy hunting ground. 
And you can tell just by that phrase that there's a little bit of infantilization involved. Mm. Have you heard of that? No. So at the risk of sounding like a broken record, there is no single overarching concept of the afterlife among indigenous people. And while there are Native American concepts of the afterlife that do involve hunting, the term happy hunting ground is probably an example of what is known as Hollywood Indian English, created for the cowboy and Indian genre. Mm. This is similar to Native Americans using the term pale face for white people or holding up one hand and saying how. These are concepts that were created by European Americans and retconned into Native lore. Yeah, I, I still have friends to this day who are convinced that at least one Native American tribe ever said how to anyone. Yeah, I wonder how many Native Americans actually looked anything like uh, the girls who go to Coachella. Uh, Buckskin skirt. Yeah. The bottom line is that pretty much every so-called fact about Native American beliefs is basically a trap. Right. For, for guys like you and me. It's a trap. And hopefully we did not piss off any Native listeners or anyone else. Uh, I'm sure we did, but it wasn't intentional. And uh, like I said, I'm doing my best out here. And we have a new maniac. You're like, we're doing our best. We realize we failed. <laughs> hey, look over here. <laughs> Squirrel. <laughs> Meet John W. Aw, W. Just John W. All right, fair. Yeah, not giving us anything to work with, but uh, giving us a maniac. Yes. And that is awesome. Yeah. Thank you, John. Thank you. And uh, he joined the Discord too as well. He was able to link his Discord and his uh, Patreon and I corresponded a little bit with John on uh, on Discord. So welcome, John. Bill Coleman. We also have a new minion, Ooh. Christopher Hayes. Christopher Hayes, up in my brain. <laughs> we have, of course, the uh, widest possible names on the Native American episode. Yeah, of course. Yeah. There was also a comment in Spotify that I wanted to uh, respond to. It said, love this episode. My Spotify wrapped was more minutes of your podcast than music. A lot of people were uh, posting their Spotify wrapped which was great in the Discord. Yeah, if you haven't gone there yet, there's a, there's a whole channel in our Discord, and uh, you can just throw your, your numbers up there, and we will coo and ooh and ah. But this person, Antonia Harold, ended by saying, how come there is no more cover art? And that's a great question, Antonia. Apple recently implemented cover art, and I use the Apple Podcast Player, and it made me realize that I don't really like cover art. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. There are certain podcasts that I always listen to, like regardless of what the episode is going to be about. Mm. So the individual cover art for each episode is just confusing. It's just making it harder for me to find and identify the podcast that I listen to because every week they have some new wacky cover. Mm. Got it. I still do create the art, and typically I use it for Instagram posts, but I just think that our feed looks a lot cleaner with some consistency. And gotcha. I, and I like our logo. It's the reason we made it. Yeah. But that does mean you can go to Instagram and find those uh, those cover artses. Yeah, and you know what? Let me know if you disagree. If there if there are enough people who want the cover art back, I will definitely consider it. We are nothing if not whores to your opinion. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> As you can see, because we did a whole episode that I definitely did not want to do. No, you were sweating with fear. It was damn near bloody. And it's not because I don't find it interesting. This no. was a very interesting episode for me, but also confounding and difficult uh, because it's just we can't even touch one tiny corner of the giant submerged iceberg that this topic represents. Truly, could sink a thousand Titanics. Anyway, uh, brisk left turn because I don't know where to go with that. Uh, let's head over to the Instagram and give Shane some love. And you and, can see uh, Inky on the uh, Instagram as well. Oh, yes. Yes, of course. Our, our brand new mascot, Inky Midnight. And the Discord. I'm putting some videos even in the Discord. All right. And then head over to the Discord, join the chaos. And then finally, I'm forever after. Knowledge is power. Sleep is overrated. 